Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to On the Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. Tonight is our 100th episode, and we will have plenty of reaction to that later on. But first, we want to introduce a very special guest. He's the Executive Vice President and General Manager of the Baltimore Orioles and has held that position since the fall of 2018. He is Mike Elias. Mike, thank you so much for coming on tonight. You bet, guys. Honored to be here on the 100th episode. It's great. <laughs> we'll um, jump right into kind of state of you know the Orioles and your approach to handling things. And one thing that we, the three of us, feel like you've done very well is with the trades you have made. Is your approach to moving players that you would rather hold on to them than settle for an uninspiring return, even if that return would be a little more timely? Well, um, yeah, it's a, a great question. Unfortunately, it's not something I can answer easily from like a philosophical level because it's just so case by case um, that that um, it's really hard for me to paint a broad brush uh, about that. I think generally speaking, um, we try to uh, have a, a idea of a player's value in mind as best we can and then how they fit into the team's plans over the next one, two, three, four, five, six years um, where they fit in and whether we might be better off you know, in our current uh, rebuilding, reloading phase of, of um, taking that value and, and putting it more into the future in the form of younger players that, that haven't accrued as much service time in the major leagues. And, you know, to take all that and um, square it and, and then also put in the intangible factors about what it does to the rest of your roster and um, people that follow the team and all kinds of um, factors that are, it's hard to even rattle off. You know, that's the, I guess, ultimately the job of being a baseball executive is trying to weigh all those things and then deciding when and how to pull the trigger. But making trades is really, really hard. You rarely line up with other teams. The timing has to be right. There are medical reviews. Um, there's all types of people involved. It, it's uh, something that falls through 99.5% of the time when you're having trade talks. And it's it's kind of a success in and of itself when when two teams are able to line up well on a trade that makes sense for both teams and it kind of goes smoothly. One thing we've seen in particular has been the acquisition of young international players, looking at Michelle Deschon, Gene Pinto, Isaac De Leon, among others, that have come back in trades in recent years. Um, how important has that been to try to build up the talent pipeline in this farm system? Um, you know, I think part of it is it's, it's just ha- kind of happened to happen for us. But also, um, I think we did make a point, especially in 2019 and 2020, before our own international signing program was really off the ground of like, oh, crap, we don't have very many interesting players in this age group. And we've got these DSL and then the GCL games to play. And, you know, you you, you want to have interesting guys getting those repetitions. So it was really a area of our farm system that we thought could use some reinforcement. Um, you know, the Orioles weren't really signing that many players of that age group or of any significance in like 2016, 2017. 
and um, you know, getting a couple guys that could fit right in there and, and backfill that, we thought would be a nice way of getting uh, our international um, pipeline flowing a little bit. And um, also, we feel I, I think we have a, a few executives um, that have some comfort with international players, either with history with the individual players or just kind of some feel for looking at DSL stats. Um, and it's it's an age group that has so much variation. I mean, the odds of there's so much that's going to happen to those guys, both good and bad, when they're 17 years old. That um, you know, if you're a playoff team, it, you're not too worried about it. Um, and so it it's something that can be available to you in trades a little bit more easily. But um, I think it's been nice getting some interesting young guys in that age group. They're doing well for their age. They're interesting. That's really all you can say about them at this point. Um, there's a long ways to go, but they've been a nice shot in the arm for the complex levels of our system. And now they're in Delmarva or, or in Pinto's case, um, higher. Mike, it's fitting we have you here since I think your last tweet is still shouting us out on Twitter from last August. So oh, really? perfect for episode 100 here. Um, <laughs> There's no question that this organization needed a complete rebuild from top to bottom, and the farm system's easily in its healthiest condition it's ever been, at least since I've been watching. As a result, there's a portion of fans that feel the short-term interest of the Major League team could have been better taken care of to provide some competitive games over the past few years, maybe sign a couple guys at the Major League level. How difficult has it been to balance those priorities? Well, it's uh, balance is a good word, um, and it's it's certainly difficult uh, being that um, our major priority, uh, specifically in 2019, 2020, 2021, was elevating the overall level of talent in the organization, kind of irregardless of whether that talent was in AAA or in the Dominican, like I was just describing. We just needed to get the whole uh, boat up um, and 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 you know rise the, the raise the the talent base um, and um, part of that is bringing in players at the major league level that are on waivers you know the Jorge Mateos of the world and allowing them to play for the first time in their career and hopefully getting some breakouts out of those groups and in order to be able to do that you've got to have the forty man roster spots you've got to have the twenty six man roster spots you got to have the playing time. And part of that is is leaving some opportunity for some young, unproven players at the major league level. Um, you know, a Cole Sulcer, uh, players like that, and um, you know, it, it uh, you know that's something that doesn't always go smoothly. Obviously, those players are freely available for a reason. Um, they have very little experience at the major leagues. They're going to take their lumps. It can be difficult. But also, we had you know, this is not a, um, a franchise or a market with with um, infinite resources. Nobody is. And we had a very significant amount of investment that needed to take place across the organization, particularly in physical, but also like digital and people infrastructure. And then we had these massive uh, draft bonus pools, which this year is like almost $20 million. And so there's a lot to be funded up and down the organization. And for us, we were keeping the priorities where they needed to be, which is laying the foundation of a healthy organization for the next 20 years, uh, but also um, as much future value and future potential as we could get into our firm system. And so we're going to continue to um, balance, I think, forever in the in that, um, you know, we're never going to want to mortgage the future. Um, we're never going to want to go all in um, 
totally on the present or totally on the future ever again. We want to have a nice, healthy, balanced organization that hopefully makes smart moves. And I think, um, you know, it's shown to be possible in places like Milwaukee and Cleveland and Tampa uh, and uh, Houston. And it's something that, um, you know, we're going to aspire to do now that we feel like we've got that healthy underbelly of an organization very much in place and it's most visible in the minor leagues. And that makes a lot of sense. It's, and there's also that new Dominican Academy being built, which I'm sure was a pretty huge expense itself. How's that coming along? Yes, yeah, coming along very well. Uh, I'm very excited about it. Uh, they've got um, the land and the, the, um, the baseball fields all uh, graded and cleared, and we've got foundation going up and walls. Um, so we're getting some brick and mortar down in the buildings. I think it's something that's very likely to open in 2023. It's going to be like a top five academy on the island, which is really cool. Um, I also, um, for people that are walks of uh, Dominican scouting and player development, it's a great location. It's really close to um, the Guardians, the Brewers, the Astros, the Royals, a bunch of other teams. Um, really nice neighborhood there, close to the airport. It's going to be a great spot for us to work out of. So I think it's uh, going to be the cherry on top of what we've been trying to do uh, with our, our Latin American operations the last couple of years. Uh, speaking of the payroll and this healthy farm system now, how do you know when the t- when that when is the time to flip that switch to be uh, competitive again in terms of major spending at the major league level? How will we know as fans paying attention uh, when it's time? Well, I think this year is going to be a big step towards that. I mean, not um, – just in terms of positive uh, developments, which we're open to have. And I think um, other than seeing hopefully continued success from guys like Cedric Mullins and Ryan Mountcastle and, and the young players that we have on the roster, Austin Hayes and these guys in Santander, um, we um, are hoping to graduate maybe five guys from our top 10 prospects list, which is a really good top 10 list into the big leagues and seeing what they do. So I think there's a lot of information coming our way this year. Some of that's negative information, like John Means needing Tommy John surgery. That's not something that we hope for or plan for, obviously. But that's what I mean. You kind of got to see how the the, the uh, die or the dice rolls a little bit this year. And, um, you know, once we have the internal evaluation that our playoff odds are escalating and getting the point of, of being uh, worthwhile, then, um, you know, we're going to, we're going to place our chips on that because we want to get to this team to the playoffs as soon as possible. Kind of leads into the next question that I had. And I think this is a point you've made before, and it's something that has played out around baseball where it doesn't always go in linear fashion that a team starts, you know, at one place and gets better within four years or five years and just gradually goes up. There probably are going to be bumps in the roads and setbacks and maybe one year will be a little bit worse than the year before. So while keeping that in mind, how do you assess progress year over year? I think it um, boils down to the individual players and, you know, not that Cedric's got to go 30-30 again to have a good development, but we want to see him, you know, maintain his the stock that he has of being an impact major league player this year. Um, we want to see Adley Rutschman get healthy, get rolling, hopefully have a good debut some point this season. Um, you know, we want to see Grayson and Kyle Bradish and these arms blossom. Um, and, you know, if I hope very much hope that we have a better win loss record than 
uh, we did last year, especially with, with the season that we had last year, um, that would be great. But I think those, those um, individual developments, the overall health of our talent base will be continue to be uh, more important than nitpicking, um, you know, a one or two loss um, dip. But I look to me, I want to see our record improve as much as possible, as quickly as possible. Um, but I want to see it done with players that are going to be around here for a while and they'd have a meaningful part of our future. So I think, um, you know, getting success from the guys that are going to be here a while, playing better baseball, winning some more games, um, all of those things are going to contribute to us being able to call 2022 a success. Yeah, and those internal improvements can change a major league team's fortunes in a hurry, as we've seen in recent years from White Sox, Blue Jays, Padres, Giants, those types of teams. Do you see a similar thing happening for the Orioles over the next couple of years? Yeah, I, I, we do. I think um, the teams that you named, um, I think the thing that jumps out is um, a core of position player talent. You know, they have a, they have lineups that are um, mostly homegrown. A um, lot of big uh, bonus babies, high picks, whatever, um, just big toolsy talent up and down the lineup. And they later in pitching uh, around around those players. Um, and that's been a blueprint for rebuilding here, I think, the last 20 years or so in, in the majors. Um, and, you know, we've it's been no secret that we've been using a lot of our high picks on position players, but I think that's why we look up and we've got, um, you know, Adley and Kowser and Gunner and Westberg and these guys um, towards the top of our um, prospect list. And then hopefully Mullins and Mountcastle and these guys keep trucking along at the major leagues. Uh, all of a sudden you can start to really dream on a pretty good lineup in your mind. And, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I think that the organization made two outstanding uh, first round pitcher picks the two years prior to me being here. And so we're trying to keep those guys healthy as well. But I do feel like our um, position player base, when you combine the major leagues and the minor leagues together, um, if, you know, for in terms of players that are out there that are not on big free agent contracts that are kind of in their homegrown phase of their career, um, it stacks up really, really well. And I really hope that, um, you know, we're able to, see a end product that's similar to Toronto and the White Sox and the other examples. So this, this deep talented farm system, like the Orioles currently have built up here, like I said, can be useful in many ways. Um, but not only having players come up and succeed in the major league level, we've already seen guys like Ryan Mountcastle start to establish themselves. But uh, you can also trade from this depth. And, and do you envision both of these scenarios playing out as this team does get closer to contention? Yeah, I do. Um, you know, we, we just try to, uh, when we, we're drafting, we just, it's really hard to, make a good draft pick. I mean, usually you look at it and you end up with a guy that's not a, not a big leaguer or even worse, like not even interesting minor leaguer. It happens most of the time, even with a high pick. And so we just try to use the draft, the early picks of the draft to make as good of value picks as we possibly can, get the best players that we can get our hands on. If we end up with four short stops, great. I don't think you know, we want to end up with four first basemen or four left fielders because it's a little harder to push those guys around the diamond and get them playing time, uh, both in the majors and the minors. But depth is a good thing for the reasons that you described. Number one, when you just need the depth anyway yourself and the competition, which I think is an underrated aspect of this, when players feel that there's a guy behind them and a guy ahead of them and a guy to the side of them 
it, it has a cultural effect that I think we're seeing in our minor leagues in a positive way. But um, yeah, we're at some point we can't keep all these guys. The rules are set up uh, with the rule five draft and the 40 man roster to prevent you from hoarding too many uh, quantity of prospects. And um, I really look forward to the days when we're picking three or four guys out of our system and painfully shipping them off um, for somebody's starting pitcher or whatever it may be. And that's absolutely um, something that's coming and it will be a very um, fun period of time, I think. One trend that we saw last year was that there were several prospects who got cups of coffee or kind of few week-long runs at a higher level than the year of Gunnar Henderson and Drew Ramabui, Miss Alde, Sona Delmarva. Those are a few examples. All three of those players have been successful to start off this year repeating those levels. So with that in mind, is getting players exposed at a higher level a deliberate part of the player development strategy, or is it kind of a reaction to 2020 and the lost time that took place because of the pandemic? Yeah, I think we love doing what we were able to do last year uh, with getting a, a gunner up uh, to a level to double A for like two weeks and a playoff series and all that. Um, I just think other than the real benefit of that experience and the reward um, for having a good season in high A, I think psychologically when you go back there the next year, just to feel like you've already know what it looks like and you kind of have a little bit of a, like a sophomore kind of swagger to you. I just think that's, it's very helpful and it's something we'll definitely look to do, you know, as guys uh, wrap up this year. But um, I think that overall our promotion strategy is kind of conservative on the front end, but when somebody is proving that they're doing well at a level, we want to get them out of there. So I think, um, you know, we're slow to take risks but we're quick to make sure uh, that we're not um, overcooking somebody at a level and we want to keep them challenged. How exciting is it for the team to have not only the first overall draft pick and the first pick of each round in the draft coming up, but five of the first 81 picks. And with the hope that this is one of the last times the team has to pick super early in the draft, if we're in contention soon, um, is this draft any different than the first three during your tenure as far as strategy? Well, I think it's really good uh, draft. We just had this morning, um, we had what we call our, our midway meetings with the scouting department and uh, all the scouts uh, clocked in and on Zoom. And we just talked through some of the top players in the country and what we wanted to do in terms of scouting process the rest of the way. Um, we are picking first, obviously, that's at the top of the plate. Um, I probably say this a lot, but I think we have a really – hard decision to make um, because there's good options, but it's a really good year um, at the top. I mean, obviously it's, it's position players this year. Um, really no way around that uh, college and high school, a lot of really good high school players. Um, and there's some really exciting kids and we got three months and we got a combine and all kinds of stuff coming up. So it's hard for me to um, forecast the future at this point, but I know I don't feel like we're getting cheaped out in terms of uh, having the number one pick because that can happen. I mean, I, I've I've uh, been a part of it and I've seen other teams. It's just you can have a really bad year to have the number one pick, and uh, it doesn't feel that way. I think we're going to be in good shape. And um, yeah, we've got um, a comp A pick. We have an early, we have the first pick in the second round. We got um, two comp B picks um, because of the trade that we did in spring training with the Marlins. And then we have the first pick in the third round. So this is going to be like one of the biggest drafts in Orioles history. 
And I think to have that on top of the number one farm system right now, um, it's a pretty big deal in terms of the talent that's going to be on the way here to Baltimore in the next five to 10 years. That is one thing that's interesting about the draft is how it has shifted in the last few years. Pre-2021, we would be two months out from the draft right now. You wouldn't have a combine. You've been involved in a lot of drafts over the years. Do you like the system now of having the draft a little deeper into the summer and having that combine in the middle, or do you not have a clear preference at this point? Yeah. The, um, so the primary, there's two reasons that they moved it into late July. Number one is the, the give us a little more space for a combine um, off the heels of the college world series. And the number two is I think they want the draft um, on uh, um, the all-star weekend or all-star break um, for publicity purposes. And I think both of those are great, um, especially with the college world series couple of times in my career, we've taken a really high pick, um, Alex Bregman or whatever, um, who was playing the College World Series. And you've got to wait and hope he doesn't get hurt and wait to do his physical. And especially if you've saved money on that pick and then you're applying it to different picks, it's very suspenseful and it kind of jams up your whole signing class. So it's nice to have that gone. Um, but it, But moving the draft from June to late July has really kind of screwed up the scouting calendar. Um, the scouts are usually done with the draft by June 10th or 12th. They're able to turn their attention entirely to the very next draft class and pro scouting. Um, and now they've got to do both of those things prior to the current year draft. And then we have a draft on July 19th and then a trade deadline on July 31st. It's just absolutely crazy uh, stretch of 20 days of huge decisions and all your scouting and front office resources and nobody getting any sleep and all that. So that, that part we don't like, I probably uh, prefer the June setup, but I don't know that it's coming back. Beyond the draft international signings and these trades that have been made over the last couple of years, perhaps the most underrated aspect of this rebuild is the complete overhaul and player development. And you can see the improvements in things like plate discipline, swing decisions at every level so far in the majors last year, uh, in particular, the pitching strikeouts, uh, how important is it for all these things to trickle up along with these prospects as they start to make their debuts? Well, it's gotten so um, competitive in player development in a good way. I think in the last like seven years, um, there was a, a tremendous uh, change in baseball player development, not just in pro ball, but also in college ball and then like like private amateur instruction, all of which was – uh, spurred by technological introductions, most significantly TrackMan or other radar tracking um, kind of uh, physics measurements of the baseball systems that, that came out, uh, but also bat sensors, really, really sophisticated cameras, body sensors, all types of stuff. Um, it totally changed what it meant to coach baseball players on a lot of levels took the industry a while to kind of grapple with it at the major league level. Um, I feel like the Houston Astros, the Los Angeles Dodgers were kind of the first teams to um, get very aggressive in turning the page to this era. Um, I think the Orioles were among some of the later teams to do it. Um, obviously we have changed that. I, I think that we've caught up and we're right there in the mix um, with everyone else. But I, you know, speaking 
very honestly, I can't say that, um, you know, it's not 30 teams pretty much on equal footing again right now. I mean, everybody's doing it this way. So, but if you aren't doing it this way, you'd be really in bad shape. And, um, you know, uh, it's nice that, that uh, we don't have that concern and, and we're, we're um, staying very competitive in terms of hiring, retaining, promoting um, the right types of people. And I think it's showing up in our players improving and getting the most out of themselves and, and um, you know, uh, spreading a good word around, around uh, the baseball community about what it means to be developed in the Orioles system, that, which is great. You talk about the, the hiring aspect of this and the coaches, and there are a lot of rising stars on the coaching side of this as well that you know, I think kind of get overlooked. Uh, Ryan Fuller now in the big leagues. We really enjoyed talking to him when we had that opportunity. Justin Ramsey, Buck Britton, and many others. Are we seeing this new version of the Oriole way here, here in Birdland? Well, I, I hope so. I think the the um, biggest thing for me is, um, you know, it's not like um, there's one perfect way to do everything, um, but there's so much value to be drawn from uh, having alignment up and down your organization that, you know, whether you're type A or type B when it comes to hitting as an organization, that's fine. There's good and bad, but um, having – uh, discontinuity across the levels, having mixed messages to the players, they lose faith in the organization, they lose, they lose respect for who's talking to them, and the whole thing falls apart. Um, and I can promise that uh, we have a very uh, unified, uh, organized uh, players, player development um, chain from all the way to the top to Brandon Hyde, all the way down to the Dominican, um, where there's good communication. We course correct when needed. We use um, information and, and um, data to to guide us and make sure that, um, you know, we're doing the best that we can on a year-to-year -year basis. And I think that's a big achievement. It's hard to do that um, and get yourself uh, on the same page. But I feel great about the people that we have on the coaching side throughout the organization. Well, Mike, we really appreciate you joining us for this episode and best of luck uh, the rest of the way going forward, top to bottom in the organization. Thank you. Yeah, it's great being on. I hope to do it again. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Thank Mike. Thanks. Welcome to On the Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. This is our 100th episode, and we've got a lot to celebrate because you just heard from Mike Elias, the Executive Vice President and General Manager of the Baltimore Orioles. We appreciate him taking the time out for us to record that interview. We covered a lot. Now, purposefully, because that interview was pre-recorded um, ahead of this 100th episode, we did not get into a lot of player-specific discussions, knowing there was a possibility that some of those questions might be out of date by the time we got to this episode. But still managed to cover a lot of ground in that interview. Appreciate him taking the time out to come on. And Nick, I'll just start with you. Your thoughts on that discussion? Uh, like we recorded that interview almost two weeks ago, and I still can't believe that we actually interviewed Michael Elias on this podcast. Um, uh, yeah, like special shout out. I think also to Orioles PR staff and their willingness to work with us in getting all these guests. Uh, I'm looking forward to having Sig and uh, maybe Eve Rosenbaum down the road. What's up? Uh, let's chat sometime. But. Um, like Elias was great. I think, you know, he gave us even a little bit of extra time than what we were scheduled for. And patrons heard my true feelings right after the interview and that uncut version that we posted. I, I can't repeat it because the main feed is family friendly. But um, like I, I wasn't 
expecting anything, you know, groundbreaking, obviously. He's very calculated in what he says. We all know that. But I think my two big takeaways I had were that, you know, when he mentioned that he's looking at five guys, barring anything, you know, catastrophic happening, he's looking at five of the of the top 10 prospects in the system debuting this year, which would be Adley Grayson, DL Hall, Brad Ashu, who is now up, and I imagine Stowers, although at this rate, like that could be Gunnar Henderson he was talking about. Uh, who knows? Um, but, you know, it's these guys are very close. Uh, DL Hall, he made those comments about DL Hall earlier in the year, and I think we're seeing those comments play out already just a couple weeks into the season. So, like, barring any catastrophic events that I'm not going to say out loud, like, by the end of 2022, we're going to see Grace Rodriguez, DL Hall, Kyle Bradish in starting rotation with a lineup centered around Adley Rutschman, Ryan Mountcastle, Cedric Mullins, Austin Hayes, and this very young, talented core, I think, to build around. Um, and also, the other big takeaway I had, I don't know if you guys kind of got this, um, but, uh, like, I don't think you can enter this offseason I don't think the Orioles entered this offseason sitting on their hands again with this group. And I got the the vibe when we asked Elias about trading prospects and he went talking about that. I just felt like his facial expression and his demeanor was kind of like he was really happy talking about that. I was like thinking to myself, like you're, you're getting kind of excited talking about uh, this aspect right now, um, which just gave me the vibe like that's close. Like he's identified who they're grooming for the big leagues, who they're grooming to be traded. Uh those discussions are probably already underway. Uh, he talked about how difficult it is to, to make trades, which is pretty cool to hear him say. Uh, but, you know, I think that time is a lot closer than maybe what we think. And uh, um, so, yeah, I wish we could have had more time with him and ask him about more detailed questions about particular prospects, you know, with his background in scouting. I think he would have been been a pretty awesome conversation, but I think we covered good ground in the 20 or so minutes we had with him. Yeah, completely agree with pretty much everything you said there. At least he said, you know, he'd love to do it again. So <laughs> see you next week, Mike. No, uh, well, hopefully we get a chance to talk to him again and dive a little deeper into more specifics. But I completely agree with what you're saying about, you know, and if it's been hard on us fans, I mean, we just had a playoff appearance, what, 2016. So it hasn't been that long. But for Elias to come in and have to deal with uh, all the negativity of a rebuild brings, especially one that takes this long to get right and has to be uprooted from the ground up. I mean, he has to be excited to be able to flip that switch as well and start to be more competitive and make moves with a more immediate success in mind rather than, oh, here's a guy that could make an impact in five or six years down the road. So yeah, I, I definitely got that vibe as well. I think that he feels we're pretty darn close. You know, as long as these guys can come up, make an impact, show that they're ready to really start you know, having being difference makers as soon as later this year or, or next year. Um, yeah, it's exciting times. And I just I cannot believe that interview happened. It was two weeks ago. It feels like yesterday, but it feels like a year ago at the same time. Like just feels like kind of a distant memory and a dream. <laughs> but uh, it was very cool. Can't uh, thank Liam Davis enough. Orioles PR. He's been outstanding and helping us come up with some of these guests and Matt Sabados recently with Double A Bowie pulling double duty announced and doing a good job there and, and hooking us up with guys like Drew Rahm and, and Brandon Young. So shout out to him as well. Zach, let's get your thoughts. I, I was, you know, thrilled with the way the interview went and I thought that he gave us a lot of good insight. He did talk about the draft a little bit, which we're going to get into more specifics later on in this show about how the class is starting to take shape a little bit about two months or so out. But I was surprised at his answer when I asked him about whether or not he prefers to draft in late June, where it had been, or I guess really sometime in June, versus the middle of July, 
And he basically talked himself into liking the draft in June better for various reasons, it seemed like. Yeah, I think I commented afterwards when we were just talking uh, that you really don't see anybody or hear anybody when they're talking about the draft that's involved in the draft process say like they like the old way better. Uh, He seemed pretty genuine. He was like, by the end, like, no, I kind of like the old way better now that I think about it. Um, But yeah, very genuine uh, guy when we interviewed him as well. That was the thing I got from the from the very start. Very genuine and and open with just three dudes, three dudes with a podcast behind a microphone. Um, So yeah, that was it was an amazing. It was just uh, pretty cool for the show. And imagine what we're gonna do uh, reach when we get to episode two hundred by now. Yeah, who's gonna own the team and who's coming on the podcast to talk (laughs) about it? Now, yeah, I do. I always thought Elias just hearing him interview. You know, obviously he is all business. He's He's very to the point, but I don't think he's a, a BSer necessarily. I feel like if he says something, he means it, even if a lot of it is just GM speak and, and what you would expect him to say. He'll say things like he said about the L Hall, going to potentially see him sooner than a lot of people think. And I, I think he means that. I, I think we see that DL has come out throwing strikes and he's moved fast through the system and maybe he'll be in Baltimore this time next month. So, yeah, I think he's a straight shooter as much as a GM can be. And I think that came across uh, talking to him one on one on three as well. Well, we've got a lot of other topics to get into tonight, but we want to make sure we shout out our Patreons. We've got some new members of the community, and I'm going to turn that over to Bob. Yeah, we put out the challenge, push us over 100 patrons for the 100th episode, and we did it. We have 102 patrons now. So thank you to the new signees, Adam Meese, Tommy Kyle, Andrew Morris, Andrew Bowden, Mike Fallon, Nicholas Andrews, and Chris Hutt, welcome aboard. We're uh, we're in triple digits now, and and hopefully we can just keep going from here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for your support, and don't forget, on the verge is part of Baltimore Sports and Life Radio. Uh, we've got a lot of great podcasts on this network as well as a lot of good coverage at the site, uh, including Orioles minor league and major league coverage. Ravens, there's been a lot of excellent NFL draft analysis over there lately to go check out and a lot more. So be sure to see on the verge as well as Baltimore sports and life. And Bob has a little bit of a contest here for us. Yeah, actually, before I go to that view, let's do uh, here are the sign balls. I don't know if you can see that's Julio Rodriguez signature. That's Bobby Witt Jr. signature. So I worked gonna... really hard on copying those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't know how many official balls yeah. we had to go through. <laughs> it was cost us a fortune. Uh, yeah. So I have put all of our patrons, all 102 patrons on a wheel. I'm going to share my screen. Sorry for the podcast listeners that this isn't going to translate. I will try our best to, uh, you know, get through this. The wheel is spinning wherever it lands. I'll reach out to you and we'll get you one of these balls of your choice. Oh, Brandon, Brandon Stoneborg, just survey, survey, man, you were so close. Drew Edwards, congratulations. Either reach out to us or I will also reach out to you on Patreon. Congratulations. Congratulations, Drew. And we'll move on now to what is quickly becoming the big buzz around Birdland, which is that Adley Rutzman is coming soon. In fact, he might be here next week. And the original aim of this segment was to talk about D.L. Hall and Adley Rutzman. Uh, being promoted to Norfolk on Friday after going to Bowie for a little bit as part of their rehab assignments. Hall had an excellent second start on his rehab tour. Adley Rutzman was doing Adley Rutzman things in Bowie. They got the call to Norfolk, joined the team in Nashville on Friday. 
And then here on Monday, it's, you know, based on some speculation, no official announcements, no concrete reports yet saying that it's definitely going to happen, but that Adley Rutzman's debut could be as soon as next week, May 16th, when the Orioles begin a series at home against the New York Yankees. So now Rutzman may only have another week left in the minor leagues. And I'm just going to start with you, Bob. Um, you've shuffled some plans around for next week, right? In anticipation yeah. of this. I think on last week's episode, I said I had changed my prediction to May 16th, start of a homestand against the Yankees on a Monday night. And I'm more certain than ever after Ben McDonald said on today's broadcast of the Royals <laughs> game this afternoon, you might want to buy tickets for that Yankee series next week because something special could happen. Well, I did. I bought tickets for next Monday night, which means we uh, might have to either pre-record our scheduled episode with Justin Ramsey, which still looking forward to that tremendously AAA Norfolk pitching coach. And we'll probably record our regular episode Tuesday night now. And hopefully we can talk about his major league debut. Yeah. Um, it, it's gotta be the 16th. Like the only thing holding Adley Richmond back at this point is that major league schedule. I think it's just really unfortunate timing for him right now because he's clearly fully healthy. Um, and ready to play every single day, but they are not going to waste his major league debut on the road. They're what at St. Louis and then Detroit for their back home against the Yankees. So like you've been painfully building up to this moment for so long, the Orioles aren't going to waste this. Um, and I don't blame them one bit. I don't think anyone can blame them one bit for holding him back a few more days until the Orioles are back home at Camden Yards. And I know a lot of Orioles fans are probably going to complain about that over the next week, especially if there's a rough night on the road. But when he's on that major league roster on May 16th, and again, that's just speculation. We don't know anything for certain, but, and he's making his MLB debut at Camden Yards in a win over the Yankees. Like, I don't think anybody's going to be complaining anymore. You know, you look at his numbers, he's played in 10 rehab games. He's hitting 400, five doubles, six walks, just two strikeouts and 41 plate appearances. Like, the guy's ready uh, as he's ever going to be. And he's right here. He, I, I would bet a lot of money. I, I got, I got permission to come up. Uh, I was telling you guys before the show, I got permission to come up for the, that game Monday night. And uh, I, I'm unfortunately not going to, but um, I would make the three hour trek and spend all the money because that's how confident I am that Ali Rushman will debut on May 16th. It, it does feel like he is ready. And I, you know, I didn't know what the recovery was going to look like if it really was much of a recovery where it was just get a tune up in and get back out on the field, but he does look ready. And I think that, you know, for the next week or so you try to manage his workload behind the plate because he should be back there catching, but not every single night, obviously. And, you know, bring him up here next Monday, if that is a plan and let him get started. I do think that you're going to have some fans that are upset that he's not up sooner. But I think the number of fans who would be upset if he debuted in St. Louis or Detroit would be a lot higher because let's not forget that it's almost a full week between the start of the next road trip and the start of the next homestand. You know, if you're a fan that has been kind of at the fringe of this rebuild, that just decide I'm going to tune out until they're good again or until there's signs of them being good again. You're already looking at the calendar thinking, okay, you know, April 6th or May 16th, excuse me, if Adley Rutzman is in the major leagues on that day, that's the day I'm tuning back in. That's the day I'm going back to Camden Yards on a Monday night. And I think that there's probably a lot more of them than there are people like us who are like, all right, just bring him up and, you know, let him play and let's see what kind of impact he can have. And 
I'll just also, you know, state this about this team. This team is a lot of fun to watch, the 2022 Orioles. I think they're clearly better than last year's Orioles, and I think they have potential to be a lot better from win-loss record, but they're not going to the playoffs. So this extra week is not going to make a big impact on the win-loss record in the standings. You know, I think that, you know, for his sake, I want him to get as much major league time as he can get, but for the teams, for the overall organization's sake and what you're going to do for the fans, there's probably a strong argument for just waiting until next week to bring him up. 100%. I mean, it's going to feel like another opening day. It's going to feel like the coronation of this of this rebuild, even though it's not. I mean, obviously, it's just another step in the right direction. Get these guys up. We're going to have another version of this soon with Grayson making his debut, Diallo making his debut, Kyle Stowers to a lesser extent. I mean, it's it's going to feel like a celebration. Win or lose that game, it's just going to be amazing to have him actually in the lineup after it felt like the rebuild started when we took him at 1-1 in 2019. It's just going to feel like the culmination of, of a lot of hard work and a lot of uh, pain and suffering from the Orioles fans' perspectives. But uh, just to put things in perspective as far as Adley, and basically this is his spring training to me. I mean, he's got, what, almost 40, 42 plate appearances on this rehab stint so far across three levels. Basically, his spring training since he was shut down, he had a 231 WRC plus in Aberdeen, 209 with Billy and 131 in AAA. His strikeout percentage, 4.7% strikeout rate, uh, which is pretty insane, and a 14.3 walk rate, which is right in line with what you would expect from him. He hits the ball so hard every time. I haven't seen one time where he's made contact and it's like, oh, didn't get all that one. If he makes contact with the ball, it's hit hard. So I'm, I, I'm excited to see his average exit velocity. Velocity. I'm excited just to look at his stat cast page every like day <laughs> throughout the rest of the season and just see how he goes. Even if he doesn't come out of the gate, maybe he comes out like Julio and Bobby Witt and Jared Kelnick have, and he struggles a bit. But it's still going to be exciting to see him develop at the major league level, and we're very close to him. Yeah, and for me, like – I know Orioles fans want to see Adley Rutschman in the majors last year. I, I think the three of us talked when we were at Bowie at a game at Bowie last year, and we thought that was going to be it for him and Bowie because I think his family was there. Uh, and so I, I assumed that that was going to be it for him, but he ended up staying for a couple more weeks. I think um, he could have been in the major leagues last year. Like there's no doubt about that. Nobody's disagreeing with that whatsoever, but he was drafted in 2019. So he only got half a season of pro ball and then 2020 happened. And, and he had mono. <laughs> Yeah, he had mono, so that <clears throat> delayed the season. Um, <clears throat> and then there was the big tour, too. He went on the, this big, huge awards tour because he won, like, every college award possible. So all that got delayed. So he got a couple of weeks in pro ball where they win him on you – know, didn't he play at three levels or something that in 2019? So then 2020 gets shut down. And now 2021, he has this injury, and there's some delusional, this is a fake injury BS or whatever. Like, n- no. Um so now, like, that got delayed as well. So, like, I think Bob's comment there about this being his spring training is completely accurate. And he's going to come up, and he's going to be fine. And I think the Orioles don't want to bring these guys up, and they want that transition to be as easy as possible. Uh, and you see guys now, like, Bobby Witt Jr. is playing pretty well. I know they're – I think he's striking out a lot. Uh, and so – but, like, that's he's a rookie. That's going to happen. I think Julio Rodriguez's strikeouts were more umpire-driven than his uh, – you know, abilities at the plate, but um, like the Orioles don't want to mess this up when they bring these prospects up and guys are going to struggle. And I was thinking the other day, watching one of the Padres games, like they got a guy like CJ Abrams, who's a phenomenal prospect and a guy who 
by all accounts, should be a, a major league regular for the next 15 years. Dynamic player. But they have him like platooning and playing multiple positions. This is this like utility role. And he's struggling right now in the major leagues. When like, would you really want a guy up doing that in that role like the Padres have uh, in CJ Abrams? Or would you want him in AAA seasoning a bit and coming up when the time is right? And I fall in plan B on that side. And now is Adley Rutschman's time. So it's it's here. And no one's going to complain anymore when he's up in the major leagues. Yeah, I agree with you 100% because I think you want to make it – you want to get it right when you bring these players up. And that's why I always talk about even with promotions within the minor leagues of, you know, make the promotion last. So another guy that a lot of fans are clamoring to get promoted right now, Gunnar Henderson, who is having an excellent start at Bowie. Make that promotion in Norfolk last. Give him a defined role where he's in the lineup every single night and don't have to send him back down. I view it the same way of bringing prospects up to the major leagues. Give them a defined role. Give them the time to develop and take their lumps and make it last. And if the Orioles can do that with Adley Rutschman, which I think they can, that will be a success. And I had an interesting question there from Vivek about the American League Rookie of the Year race, which I think you know maybe Rutschman has a shot at getting back into, which was uh, – Bob, do you mind pulling it up? Oh, sorry. Yeah, no problem. <clears throat> Uh, can Adley make up ground in the American League Rookie of the Year race? Stephen Kwan and Jeremy Pena probably lead right now. Julio Rodriguez and Bobby Witt, who are two top contenders coming into the year, uh, have struggled a little bit, but those are two good options in Kwan and Pena. We all three said at the start of the season when we did our predictions so that we didn't think Rutzman would win American League Rookie of the Year because of the lost time. Are either of you inclined to change your minds right now? I think he could. I think he could. Um, but you also have Joe Ryan for the Twins pitching his heart out. I mean, I feel like Stephen Kwan has is, is got to be the heavy front runner. That guy is fun to watch. He does not swing and miss very much at all. And he's already got a month, month and a half of play by the time Adley comes up potentially. So I do think it's possible if Adley comes up and performs like we know he can, then, yeah, he can certainly still win this. But he's also – He's starting from a, a bit of a hole, and he'll have to be like Juan Franco from last year to to really have a chance. But it'd be great. I'm I'm fine if he wins, even if we lose that year. I do not care. It means he came out and he's performing well. I'll take that every day of the week. We want to sign him to an extension anyway. Yeah, the, the extension is going to come anyway, so that's kind of regardless. And I almost wonder, like, you know, Quan seems like was he ever like a top 100 big time prospect guy or is only he... from Eric Long and point of view, he had him in top 100. I think he was a bit of an outlier. Yeah. I mean, he, that's normally the case with a lot of guys, which is why I love those lists. Um, I feel like Quan, you know, could be uh, like a pop-up risk guy. Like, is that going to continue this full year? I don't know, but Cleveland does a fantastic job with their prospects and their system. So it could, uh, Jeremy Pena, I feel like uh, I hear – I don't know too much about Jeremy Pena except uh, I think I had a couple of his rookie cards and I sold them for like almost nothing. And then he was like destroying the ball recently. I was like, maybe I should have held on to those. Um, <laughs> but I feel like a lot of people don't like Jeremy Pena and his prospect – him as like a, a future major leaguer. So, you know, those – Adley Rutschman I feel like has the name for himself and the fact that he's a catcher, if he's a catcher and comes out and hits extremely well, like he has his entire career up to this point, then yeah, I think he can make a big push for rookie of the year race. So how do you think Oregon state fans feel right now? Stephen Kwan against Adley Rutzman, possibly <laughs> for rookie of the year down the stretch over the next few months. Can we get a Caden Grenier sighting? 
I was going to say, where are the Kane Grenier believers at? <laughs> I know they're out there. So I do want to talk about D.L. Hall because he's been pitching really well in his recovery from his injury last summer in the minor leagues. He's now made a start at high A, a start at double A, and so far in that stretch he has been pretty much lights out and has overmatched hitters that he should be overmatching in a normal sense. But when you factor in how much time he has missed, it's impressive. Seven and two-thirds innings combined over two starts. 12 strikeouts against one walk with a 2-3-5 ERA. Uh, he's now going to Norfolk. This is going to be his first run at AAA. You have to think that he's going to be left there for a little while to stretch out. And I think you want him to get not as far as the Orioles were pushing with Grayson Rodriguez necessarily, where Rodriguez is now going into the sixth inning on starts. He's got his pitch count up over 80 pitches. I don't know if Hall necessarily gets there or gets there quickly, but I do think you see him stretch out a little bit. Now, that aside, I think you guys would agree his stuff has looked really good to this point. It looks better than ever to me. I mean, if you just look at that box score from last Thursday, you'd be like, okay, he gave up two runs, struck out six guys, walked a better. Well, his one walk was aided by a automatic ball call because he took too long in between pitches. Not going to have to deal with that soon at the major league level. And 47 of his 59 pitches were for strikes. That's 80% for a guy who has command issues. Uh, yeah, pretty darn good. So, and his fastball, it looked like easy 98, 99, touching 100. Didn't even look like high effort. His changeup was just getting swings and misses left and right. I, th I thought he looked in absolutely incredible. Uh, I think they might want to get him up to 70, 75 pitches before he gets to the major league level. So I'd give him like maybe six starts in AAA as long as everything goes well. And I think they're going to get him up here and he'll be in like the Tyler Wells type schedule, which we saw him pitch six innings today, which was, was pretty cool to see. So I don't think they're going to waste many bullets. It's a little bit different than Grayson because Grayson's, I think expected to be like a workhorse ace top of the rotation type of guy. And, you know, he's, he's almost there. I think they're just going to be more careful with him with DL, especially with his potentially injury history type of stuff, get him up here get him in the majors and let him loose. Yeah. Like DL Hall is not a relief prospect. Anybody who was along that path, I think, no, you watch this guy pitch this year and he's out to prove a lot of people wrong. And I think he's showing you in these two outings, exactly why you have national writers like Carlos Colazzo and, and friend of the pod, Ben Badler uh, on their podcast. were saying before the season started, how in their opinion, DL Hall had a real argument to be the top pitching prospect in all of baseball once Grayson Rodriguez graduates and you look at that start, like he had in Bowie and I felt like last year in Bowie, it was a lot of, he was using that overpowering fastball to, to blow past guys. And when he would try to go off speed or using secondaries, that's when the pitch counts would rise and he would get into some trouble. And then the other day, it just seemed, it was like Matt Sabato's on, on that broadcast, like change up, swing and miss, strike three, change up, deal hall on the change up. It was all change up, change up, change up. And he's getting so much swing and miss. And he's in a spot with that pitch. Uh, I think he flipped in like one curveball as like a, hey, I, I have this pitch as well. Um, like the secondaries are working as well. He's not just relying on that 9,900 mile an hour heat to blow guys away. That's that's impressive. Uh, and I think we might have been kind of wrong about this whole the Orioles handling him with kid gloves thing. Like possibly leading up to that major league cup of, co uh, cup of coffee at the major leagues out of the bullpen. I think that if he comes out and he's pit continues to pitch this well in Norfolk, I think he's in the majors very, very soon. 
Uh, like Bob said, I don't think they're going to waste any of those bullets in his arm. And I think Deal Hall is out, like I said, to prove a lot of people wrong because every conversation around Deal Hall has been about that control. He has to throw strikes. He has to throw strikes. And I remember being on one of those preseason Zoom calls with him last year when he was in Bowie, and he was like, I- I'm sick and tired of people talking about that. And I think he went to the alt site. He said that was the focus at the alt site was to clean that up. And we didn't get to see it last year because of the injury. And we haven't really get to see it over an extended period this year. But so far, he's shown a lot of people that he has cleaned that up. He's a strike thrower. He's a flamethrower. And, um, yeah, I, this is going to hurt to say. Like, I'm, I'm already going to get sick here. Um, but I, I agree with Keith Law. Uh, Keith Law was the early man on this and saying that <laughs> – I know. He was the early man on this and saying that he thought as far as the ceiling goes, D.L. Hall has the higher ceiling. And I, I – compared to Grayson Rodriguez. And I firmly uh, agree with that take. Yeah, I do as well. And it's not, I still think Grayson is the best pitching prospect in baseball, but for different reasons, I think from pure stuff standpoint, Hall's tops maybe in all of baseball, if he can come up and do this at the major league level. I mean, it's insane. Just the raw ability that he has with his left arm. We had the guy from the Orioles a long time ago, a 24 carat arm, right? So I think the L Hall is the, the real 24 karat arm, and he's got a chance to show it off soon. So we got a question here from Adit, which is when it comes to calling people up, what percentage does business slash promotion take up, and how much of it is the baseball reason? I think most of the time the baseball reason is going to take precedence. And I know we kind of took the business angle with Adley Rutzman, but that's a little bit of a different case where the Orioles are out of town for a week. Um, and if you can, you might as well, but curious to get your thoughts on this. My, my personal feeling is that baseball reasons probably drive the decision most of the time, especially if you have the expectation of winning. I would hope that the days of David Clyde, I think it was getting called up way too soon by the Rangers are well in the past for baseball, but curious to get your thoughts on this. I think it's, it's baseball for when they're ready to come up in its business slash promotion as far as the timing. I mean, if you're, and it makes sense kind of from just a baseball perspective as well. If, if a guy's coming up, it's a, it's a big pressure thing to make your major league debut as it is. You'd rather it be in front of friendly, friendly fans that are on your side and going to boost you up rather than just, I don't know, it could be a little bit tricky to have to travel all the way on the road. Think about it the whole time you're traveling. I mean, it's still going to be a lot of pressure no matter what, but it makes sense to, to make your major league debut at home if, if at all possible. Yeah. I mean, I agree with that. You want, you want, that's a special moment. I feel like for fans as well. Like we follow these guys in the minor leagues, even people who don't, who aren't religiously following the minor leagues like we do, uh, or, you know, the Patreon group, right? Like you're still know who Ali Rutschman is and you still follow his journey and checking on that box scores most nights probably. And so like, why would you want to all this anticipation? Why would you want to see him make his debut against the St. Louis Cardinals uh, on May 10th or whatever tomorrow's date is. Yeah, May 10th. Like, I want to see him at home at Camden Yards making that first debut, his first hit to be at Camden Yards, his first home run, if possible, to be at Camden Yards, right? Like, that's what I want. The only thing I did think about when there was this whole, like, is Cal Bradish coming up? Um, I think Cal Bradish, this is it for him. And they were going to play the Angels on the road. I did think that was a possibility because, you know, he's not a – you know, that premier prospect like Adley or Grayson is, but you know, he's still obviously a fantastic prospect and pitching really well in the major leagues right now. But he was a New Mexico State guy or New Mexico guy. 
was drafted by the Angels. So I'd imagine like maybe it's easier for family and friends to get out to see him. But yeah, at the end of the day, like travel purposes, family, comfort, all of that. I think that does play a small role in it, of course. Of course it will. And at the end of the day, like, unfortunately, the, the guys running this team, this is a business. Uh, and so, yeah, that's going to take into account too. We're going to go on a completely different path here and um, talk about what happened in Bowie yesterday, which was the 11th no-hitter in Bay Sox franchise history. Game one of the doubleheader, Garrett Stallings and Morgan McSweeney combined to no-hit the Harrisburg Senators as part of a 4 to nothing win for the Bowie Bay Sox. And I'll just read off some numbers here. Stallings uh, really picked up the load in game one of a seven-inning doubleheader going six innings. No hits, obviously. Two walks compared to five strikeouts. He has been off to a phenomenal start this year. Then Morgan McSweeney came in with the shutout seventh inning to seal the deal. So I think, personally, no hitters are fun, no matter what this context is. But it was especially good to see this one because you had two pretty intriguing prospects out there with their best stuff uh, on Sunday afternoon. Yeah, Drew Rahm just said last week on this show that Garrett Stallings is going to be a guy that more people need to be talking about. And what does he do? He throws – he's part of a combined no-hitter. Um, six no-hit innings himself. The man's got a 0.75 whip on the year. The ground ball rate I noticed earlier in the year was really low, uh, but that's climbing up again. I've always enjoyed watching Stallings work. I think he works fast. Uh, I think he does a good job of you know missing those barrels. A lot of those home runs are kind of cheapies, I thought, last year. And that's still kind of an issue so far. It's still very early. I think he's given up three, maybe four. Um, I think it was three last time I checked. But I think he's doing a better job overall this year. I think he's got a little bit more pep in his step this year, uh, a little bit more focused. And, you know, if he can emerge as a legitimate starting pitching prospect, it only adds to the depth of this system. And, uh, yeah, it's cool to see Morgan McSweeney as well. This is a guy that you talk about fan graphs and outliers. He was on fan graphs top 40 list. Uh, so, yeah, both of the uh, fantastic job for those guys. The 11th no-hitter in Bowie Bay Sox history, so pretty cool. Yeah, I feel like I'm using up a lot of my material that's going to be in my Down on the Farm column that's coming out later tonight. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, shout-out to Garrett Stallings, who this is what happens when his home run to fly ball percentage is at a normal rate. It's at 12% right now, and he's got a 2.63 ERA. So uh, I think, you know, he's probably not – going to be quite as good as his stats right now indicate long term but he pounds the strike zone he's second on the team in walk percentage which is actually higher than it was at any point last year so it could probably still come down and he's 17th in the eastern league in walk rate only drew rom is better and he's striking out more batters than he ever has he's striking out 25 percent i think 20 percent right around 20 percent was his high last year either with high a or double a so it's improvement it's good it's uh you love to see it. The The more pitchers we have coming through, the better, and we got plenty of them. I think if he pitches it like this for another month or two, he could be in AAA once Grayson and Dia Hall move up to the major league level. Yeah, I completely agree. He has looked really good this year, and I think that the efficiency, not giving up a lot of hard contact, are so crucial to him uh, being successful, and he's managed to zero in on those areas this year. And I do think that when you look at Morgan McSweeney's production this year, there is more than what meets the stat line. Uh, because ERA after Sunday's outing sits at 5.59, but he was hit around in back-to-back-to-back outings early in the season and then has settled down since then. And right now you're looking at the guy that has 13 strikeouts to three walks and nine and two-thirds innings of relief. And Fangrass was high on his stuff. I think his stuff has mostly been there for him this year. So 
I'm curious to see if you know he puts together a good month of May, what his numbers are going to look like. I love the Wake Forest guys. I've said it before. I'm going to keep saying it. You come out of Wake Forest, I'm betting on you to make it. Uh, so, yeah, really cool to see that. And like you mentioned, especially it being a guy like Stallings as a starting pitcher. You know, if it was when Michael Bauman threw that no-hitter the other year for Bowie, it was like this is a, a legit pitching prospect that a lot of people are excited about. That's good to see. Uh, but for it to be a guy like Stallings, who a lot of people are kind of overlooking or you know not really paying much attention to, uh, you kind of put your name out there and put yourself on the map. And so it's it's good to see. I, I will be anxious to see how he can handle AAA pitching. And I think he, there's still a lot more questions he needs to answer. But so far, so good. Yeah, I think with Kyle Bronovich, you know, we talked about him, or at least uh, I think I did at some point somewhere along the lines, that he could be like that fifth starter guy. You know, he doesn't have exactly the, the stuff of a Bradish or Rodriguez or Hall, but he's the kind of pitcher that could hold down a fifth rotation spot. I think maybe Garrett Stallings could angle to take his place while Bronovich recovers from his, his elbow injury. I think he's another guy that can kind of, you know, give you five, six quality innings at the back end of a rotation if, if everything goes right. Talk about someone at Bowie who has just been playing at such a high level all season, and that's Gunnar Henderson. And uh, Nick tweeted these stats out on our account at BSL on the Verge this morning, and there's just some in here that I want to read off because they're so impressive. He has reached base in all 25 games played this season with the Bay Sox. 965 OPS, four home runs, four doubles. He has walked more than he has struck out, 23 walks compared to 20 strikeouts. 176 WRC plus, and 10 for 10 in stolen base attempts. I don't know where the speed came from or the stolen base speed came from all of a sudden, but uh, he's been really successful in the bases this year. I think the the three of us had expectations that Gunnar Henderson was going to break out even more than he already has this year, that he would go to double A and he would handle it well. But I don't know that any of us quite thought that after 81 at-bats at Bowie to start the season, he would have an OPS well over 900, 965 right now, and that he would be walking more than he has struck out. This, is to me, has just been really impressive in so many different ways because he's doing all the things you expect Gunnar Henderson to do, which is hit the ball hard, but he's a more complete hitter than he's ever been. It's unbelievable. It's He's going to be – if he keeps this up, he'll be in AAA before he turns 21. He <laughs> – he is angling to be a top 25, top 15 prospect in baseball at this point. I mean, he's so young. The improvement in walk and strikeout rate is insanely drastic. And it's just like something clicked like that. And he still has that power to all fields that we've seen. I think Nick noted this as well in a recent daily update that even when he, he like flies out, quote unquote, it's on a line at like 385 feet, either to dead center or in one of the gaps and it just gets tracked down. Like he's, he's killing the ball. He only has four doubles, four home runs, but it's, it's not indicative of how hard he's hitting the ball consistently. He's walking 21.1% of the time, which is way higher than he did last year, which we saw him improve during the year last year as well as he moved up. And he's like second, he's top five or top 10 in most offensive categories. He's number two in one base percentage in double a Eastern league at 459. He's, got an 18.3% strikeout rate, which even when he was demolishing low A Del Marva at the beginning of last year, he struck out almost 30% of the time. So it's it's such a drastic improvement, and it's in every facet. He's 10 out of 10 in stolen bases, like you mentioned. His defense looks 
noticeably better. He is feeling the ball cleaner. He is getting to more balls, and he's very accurate with his throws all of a sudden. So to me, he's it, he's been the revelation of, of this season in the minor leagues for me, and he's the non, number one prospect in the Orioles system as soon as D.L. Hall, Grayson Rodriguez, and Adley uh, expire their, their prospect status. Yeah, I, I don't think any of that was an over-exaggeration. Like, this is a 20-year-old kid uh, who is walking more than striking out. And you look at those insane strikeout numbers he had, and that was the whole discussion last year about how much he's striking out uh, at all levels. He's not doing that this year. And what I know we talked a lot recently. There's been a lot of discussion about the Colton Kowser strikeout rates, right? And when do the strikeout rates and walk rates tend to stabilize? Well, we're past that point. And look what Gunnar Henderson is doing. These are phenomenal numbers for a 20-year-old who's, what, three, four years younger than the competition. I, I didn't look. I'm not going to be able to pull it up. Baseball reference does not work very well for me on this computer. But has he faced a pitcher younger than him yet in double-A? Because as of like a week ago, he hadn't. Every single at-bat he'd taken in double-A this year was against guys older than he is. Um, so, yeah, it's the speed. I pulled the comment here, too, from uh, Voice of the Bay Sox, Adam Pohl. I liked his comment too. He said something to watch as a big leaguer down the road. He gets really good jumps and stealing bases, has a good eye at the plates. I wouldn't have thought to say this a month ago, but he has been more of a perfect table setter in Bowie could lead off. Uh, yeah, he could be a fantastic leadoff hitter uh, at the next level. And we know that the Orioles, and I believe it was, I believe Elias mentioned this when we talked to him that, yeah, maybe initially they're more conservative with some minor league placements with some guys but they're going to challenge these guys when they're ready. And I think Gunnar Henderson is ready. It's been a month. I think you're going to see a lot of movement when Adley comes up at the top of this roster. There's a lot of dead weight on that major league roster. As fun as it is, as much as this team has improved, there's still a lot of dead weight on that roster. And so I think you're going to see guys move up to the major leagues from AAA. You're going to see some of these AAA guys, I think, possibly even get the boot. Uh, and it's time to make way for some of these double-A guys who are really impressing so far. Um, and Gunnar Henderson leads that back. Yeah, I think this is the guy. Every It seems like every player we've talked to as well, every hitter we've talked to, um, has gone out of their way to mention Gunnar Henderson as a dude, like a real dude. Um, and so he's got the respect of his teammates, and he's going to get the respect of a lot more people here as the season goes on. Completely agree. And Nick, um, 109 plate appearances for Gunnar Henderson this year. All of them have been against older pitchers. There you go. The guy's doing it. And the, he's completely blown that narrative up of he starts slow and it takes time to adjust, and then he he hits the ball well. He came out from day one and hasn't turned back since. You forgot the three true outcomes hitter, that narrative. <laughs> yeah, that's that's done too. He, he literally does it. Five-tool play right here. Is there six tools? He's, six, he's a six-tool play. He's got I think heart. Orioles fans <laughs> – are going to love him watching him play too because he is so competitive. He gets so into the game. He gets so fired up, hustle doubles, like gets pissed off if anything doesn't go his way in a positive way. So, yeah, love watching him play. I can't wait to see these young guys come up. Absolutely. And I think that Henderson's time in AAA is probably sooner rather than later. We'll turn our attention now to the 2022 MLB draft, which will take place in the middle of July. And at this point, you know, mock drafts, you have to treat them as what they are, which is preliminary, because a lot of things can change. But we have had a couple of mock drafts come out in recent weeks, and we thought that with the Michael Elias interview being included on this show, it would be time to turn our attention to some that came out towards the end of April. Because 
it presents some different options for the Orioles at number one. And so, for example, MLB Pipeline, John Mayo, Jonathan Mayo put together his mock draft, and he has the Orioles going with Brooks Lee, the shortstop out of Cal Poly, with the number one pick. The reasoning being, in part, that college hitter, we know the Orioles like college hitters. This would be an opportunity to go under slot. Lee has shown that he you know, maybe can stick at shortstop, having a good year at Cal Poly. But then Prospects Live has the Orioles going with Drew Jones, who in a competitive class, and believe me, it is still a competitive class. There's a lot of things that aren't settled. But in a competitive class, a lot of pundits seem to be moving in the direction of Drew Jones as the number one pick over some guys that we talked about a lot uh, back in February when we were really ramping up our draft coverage a little bit, including Tamar Johnson. Uh, it feels like Jones is separating himself from the pack a little bit. And really, who the Orioles take at this point in your mind probably has to depend on what you believe their strategy is going to be. And it's going to be a repeat of the last two years where they go with the college bat that they feel like is advanced, could get to the major leagues quickly, has a lot to offer, and they can sign for a deal that's under slot. It could be somebody like Brooks Lee. If they go for, you know, like they did in 2019, consensus top player available, especially if that player is regarded as the hands-down favorite to be the number one pick, they're going to go with Drew Jones. It really does feel that way right now. Now, that's not to say it can't be Tamar Johnson or it couldn't be Jackson Holiday, or it couldn't be some of the other names that we might talk about tonight. But it does feel like maybe you can start to – things are starting to come into picture a little bit. And I'll start with Nick here. Just kind of curious to get your thoughts. We know that mock drafts are a far – you know, taking a look far into the distance. Michael Elias talked a lot about high school hitters when he was on our show, but didn't really name names. So where, where do you think the Orioles stand right now? So, yeah, MLB Pipeline did have Brixley, and I think Baseball America in their latest mock draft also had Brixley going to the Orioles. Uh, I haven't watched any of these high school kids. You know, I've got nothing but what I've read on Baseball America, Prospects Live, and other places. I typically have good reads on a lot of the top college guys, uh, but you know, welcoming a second child right after baseball season started, I think most of my focus was – making sure I saw Chase DeLauder as much as possible at JMU before he graduates. And luckily I got to see him before he broke his foot. Um, so if he falls later, uh, Michael Elias, we know you're listening to the podcast. Um, Matt Blood, Brad Selig, um, Chase DeLauder falls. Uh, there's your guy. But uh, we also know, and Jonathan Mayo mentioned in the MLB Pipeline podcast that the Orioles are heavily scouting all four of the top high school picks. Uh, who was it for Kylie McDaniel at ESPN was uh, he was at the Drew Jones playoff game. And he said, look, they're the teams. There were top level executives or scouts from the teams with the top three picks watching Drew Jones uh, playoff games when he hit that just unbelievable home run shot that Kylie posted. Uh, so the Orioles are in on these high school kids. And I do agree with the fact that this is the time to go after one of those roll the dice on one of these high ceiling high school kids, especially when this college class or this draft class seems to be loaded with college bats. And so, and the Orioles have what five picks in the top, you know, 70 something, 80 something picks. Like my preference honestly would be drew Jones right now, but I'm only saying that because he's a center fielder who hits uber impressive home runs. And his dad was one of my favorite baseball players of all time. Um, I'm excited to get someone who has watched these guys live to talk about them and learn more about them. But like, if it's Tamar Johnson, cool. If it's Elijah Green, I'm fine with that. If it's Brooks Lee, honestly, 
I'm fine with that. Um, I think the Orioles are going to take who their model believes and who their scouts believe is the best player available at this uh, juncture. But yeah, you mentioned Elias, what he mentioned in, in that interview. And my takeaway is that I do believe he does. I believe that he thinks the high school pick is going to be the right pick here. Uh, and then you can load up with college bats later in, early in the draft. And without pitching, it seems like every top college pitcher is either hurt or suspended. So maybe teams at the back end of the first round might reach for some pitching. I don't know. And maybe that could leave some first round quality bats available to the Orioles and you can save money there and go all in with that uh, one, one pick. Yeah, I agree. And, and Vivek mentioned he got the hint that Elias was leaning high school over college. I kind of got the same vibe. Just the fact that he said, you know, some years it doesn't really pay to have the first overall pick, but this year it does. To me, that's Graham's Drew Jones, Elijah Green, these high school guys, Tamar Johnson. So I think I've been a big Tamar Johnson this whole time, but I I do have to admit I'm coming around on Drew Jones the more I see and the more he just separates himself from the field. So my I wouldn't be shocked if it was Brooks Lee either. How could you be? But I think it's going to be Drew Jones, and I think they'll find a way to save some money somewhere else to make the most of these picks. And it's exciting. I think, you know, we're, look, the team is already playing better now and Adley, Grayson, Deal, they're not even not even up at the big league level yet. We haven't even churned out all the 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 bottom feeders on the on the major league squad that will be gone by June. So I think the Orioles major league record is going to be improved this year. And we're unless we get really lucky with the lottery, we're probably not going to have a top five pick. So make the most of this one as as I've been saying. And I think it's going to be Drew Jones. And like Nick said, we can still get some really quality college hitters and maybe a couple pitchers with those first five or six or so picks. So I think, I think it's going to be good. I said at the onset of this year that I thought the class had probably six players or so in it that I would be happy with at the number one pick. I think the number still stands around five or six for me, even if that field of players has mixed, been mixed up a little bit. Chase Delauder was a guy that I had in mind as a possible one, one, but you know, as Nick mentioned, he's hurt. So that's not going to happen. Brooks Lee was someone that I'll admit I was coming into this year not quite as enthusiastic about, um, just for some reasons. One of them being something that Stephen Loftus pointed out in what I think was his last article for Baltimore Sports and Life before he went to the Braves, and I think he talked about it a little bit in his last appearance on the show, was the walk rate. Uh, was not high for Brooks Lee last year. This year it is up significantly. He's uh, walked almost 18% of the time this year for Cal Poly, but I wanted to pull this stat up. He's been walked 40 times this year, 18 of them intentional. Mm. So, you know, take that with a little bit of a grain of salt. Now, high school hitters probably get walked a lot more than that, but something to consider with Brooks Lee. And I still think that you can make a valid argument for Brooks Lee as a top pick, but I think for me right now, I lean towards the high school bats. Uh, Johnson... Tamar Johnson still is the safest pick in my mind because of the bat. But Drew Jones is, I think, the closest thing you have to a five-tool player in this draft. And it's not often that you get an 18-year-old who already has this raw skill set that is so good. And the one thing that everybody can agree on uh, in their scouting reports is that he will stick in center field. You don't see that with 18-year-olds very much. Oops. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, yeah, and I think too, like 
Tamar could be the pick as well. Like if the Orioles are watching him and they think maybe he could stick it shortstop for us, let's get him in our system. And we think that could work. Then I could see them going Tamar as well. If that hit tool is as advertised, what was it? Tony Gwynn, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. or Vladimir Guerrero Sr. and uh, like Babe Ruth hit tool combined, like <laughs> some absurd comp they had. Um, but yeah, and I, I see the comment here from Added about Jackson Holiday. You guys mentioned him as well. Jackson Holiday is the new pop-up name that I think MLB Pipeline said he went up like 40 or 50 spots on their list after his start. And yeah, I think his his dad is Matt Holiday, who's like an assistant at Oklahoma State. And I think his uncle is the head coach. Or there's another family member that's the head coach. But clearly, this is becoming the hot name uh, as the high school season kind of wraps up over the next couple of weeks. So, yeah, I'm excited to get someone on the show who has watched these guys live multiple times and get their thoughts on these high school kids. But um, this is the year to have the number one pick because I don't know if you pick any of these four guys. Like, And even if it is Brooks Lee, I do get why fans maybe wouldn't be as excited if it is Brooks Lee, but – I really don't see where you can go wrong with whoever you end up taking at one one this year. There's just so many options. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a guy we haven't really talked about, I would be okay with Elijah Green. If the rationale from the Orioles was, you know, we've you've seen what we've done with Gunnar Henderson, Kobe Mayo, Kyle Stowers, the guys with good hit tools, a lot of power, but questionable swing and miss tendencies, concerned they're going to strike out a lot, Look at how we've developed them. We can do the same thing as Eliza Green. I'd be fine. I would respect that choice. I, I would respect that. I think that there are big question marks with Green. But if they felt like the player development system was as such that they could get the best out of him while minimizing some of the tendencies that have caused him to slip a little bit in the rankings coming up to this year, I would be okay with that. I kind of getting like – Kumar Rocker, just me personally, I'm getting Kumar Rocker vibes from Elijah Green. It was like Rocker, 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 Rocker leading up for like two years leading up to the draft. And then that last year, I was kind of like, is he really that good? Like, are we overhyping him? It was like that prospect fatigue that we talked about with Stephen Loftus even admitted like, yeah, there probably is some of that going on. I'm kind of at that point with Elijah Green. I feel like it's been Elijah Green for the last two years. And I'm like, there's all these cooler, like sexier names popping up. Uh, it's like, is he really that good still? But yeah, I think that's a great point that I'm not concerned. It seems like the big issue with Green was the strikeouts. I'm not listening to that at this point. I'm, I wouldn't be concerned if that's the big knock on Elijah Green. Yeah, I'm, I could definitely see Elijah Green being the guy, especially like you said, with what they've been able to to do with some of these more raw, powerful, toolsy swings like Gunner and, and Stowers. Like if they think he's got the most powerful upside as a hit tool power tool combination with his defense and arm in the outfield then then go at it let's let's do it i just i want someone that they feel has the highest upside as well as you know being able to just make the most of the pick that's all i want so whether it's brooks lee or one of the high school guys i think it's just proven that they're going to make the pick that they feel is the best for the system and it's not going to be dictated by what's going to make people happy. And, and keep in mind as you listen to this that we're still a little more than two months out from the draft, and a lot of things can change. But for now, these seem to be the five players or so that you should be keeping your eye on for that number one pick. And before we get into our staple of our last segment, which is where we highlight players outside of our top 30, and then we've got a good group together for that this week, do want to acknowledge our 100th episode, um, Bob and Nick, 
thank you for everything that you have done to help get us here, uh, to bring us to this point. And thank you to Chris Stoner at BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com for putting us in this position, for supporting us with the site, to our BSL contributors, uh, past and present, uh, for their help with this show. So, and to all of our all of our listeners who have made this happen. Absolutely, you guys. This was Chris put us together, and it's just been like uh, like magic ever since. It, this has been the favorite thing I have been a part of. I look forward to it every single week, and it's constantly on my mind all day, every day. My wife hates it, but I love it. And uh, yeah, couldn't do it whether we had one listener or a thousand or whatever. I'd be doing this and be happy to do it. So. Thank you. Yeah. Remember, I, I don't know about you guys, but I just get super excited. We're like, we got 100 listens on this episode. Um, my, how we have grown. Um, like, like, I think I mentioned before on the show that, you know, this whole story for me begins with, like, I was drunk at a bar with my wife. Uh, <laughs> and uh, now, like, six years later, here I am. Uh, like, I hated my job. I was looking for something fun to do. And uh Started writing about Orioles minor league baseball, and now we're here with this podcast. Yeah, it led me to BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com, which is amazing. Um, like I didn't know what to expect when we started in February of 2020. Uh, there just there are a lot of great Orioles podcasts out there, and many of them have been around for uh, how long is Bird's Eye View? I know you guys are listening. It's been around for like 10 years. Um, a long like, time. These guys have these shows have loyal followings. Connor is doing this every day during the regular season at Locked On Orioles. Um, so, like, why would anybody want to add? There's so many podcasts people could go to, right? Everybody has a podcast. Um, and, and so, but we have this loyal following. It's amazing to see how many people every single week listen to the show. We've crossed 100 patrons, which is amazing. We just interviewed Michael Elias. Um, and for me, like, the listens are great. The people who tune in every week are fantastic. The patrons are unbelievable that you go that extra mile. Uh, but for me personally, like, what really is just, like, hits me in the gut and makes me so emotional here um, is like when players, we've had players reach out like at the end of the last season, they're like, Hey, thanks. Thank you for doing what you do. Players come on the show. And like, before we hop on, they're like, yeah, we really appreciate what you guys do. And just thank you for everything. We love your product. Members of the Orioles front office are like, Hey, like we love this content and we love what you guys are doing. And uh, that means everything because um, I did, I never expected us to reach a, uh, this level that, that we're at and this product to be what it is. And yeah, you guys are, um, we're amazing. Basically <laughs> <laughs> the fans we're nothing without the people who listen though. And you guys are obviously number one. So thank you. Yeah, honestly, it's surreal. And, uh, it's a good feeling when you get that positive feedback and I'm not a confident person in the real world, but this is one thing I'm confident that we put out a good product. So it's, it's good to have, it's a good thing to have for sure uh, hopefully all of you all stick around when this rebuild is over <laughs> <laughs> yeah mission accomplished a, <laughs> okay we don't have to listen to those guys anymore <laughs> we found a really good niche and we have filled that niche uh but um hopefully when the orioles are winning world series titles um you still remember the prospects and we're going to turn our attention to some of those prospects now uh shouting out some guys that have impressed us with something they've done in the last week good game um good week overall or maybe just some Beneath the surface things that are kind of impressing us right now. And I'm going to start with Nick because he chose to shout out a guy that seems to be breaking out a little bit offensively and then an entire pitching staff. Yeah, yeah I mentioned before we came on that this was kind of a tougher week to uh, we'll admit. It was a tougher week to find the guys. Uh, but Ryan Higgins was my hitter like six games last week. 
He only hit 250, which for this segment isn't super impressive when you're talking about a weak sample size, but he did hit a double, a triple, a home run, his first career home run, walked six times, struck out just four times. He's reached base in eight of his last nine games. He's got a lot of raw power in that bat, and it was good to see him finally connect on one. Um, he had like less than 10 at-bats last year after being drafted at a Fresno State and surgery into the year, so he didn't have that gcl experience fcl experience i forget what we're calling it at this point um he didn't have that fcl experience he didn't have that short season experience he's just being thrust in like so many other guys on this roster delmarva roster except for daryl hernays and davis Tavares and a couple of other pitchers like these guys are being thrown into full season ball like head first uh and it's taking some time it can be tough to watch some nights but some guys are really turning it around and higgins is one of those um so kudos to him hopefully this is a turning point for him and yeah, I've just put down Aberdeen starting rotation, like Houston Roth, Justin Armbruster, Gene Pinto, Carlos Tavera, and Connor Gillespie all started last week for the Ironbirds. They combined to throw 20 innings, just one earned run, eight hits, seven walks, 26 strikeouts. Um, and we're, we're going to talk about another guy in this segment as well, but shout out to uh, Noah DeNoyer. Uh, I'll hang on to the other guy, but uh, DeNoyer also, I think he allowed one run, a couple strikeouts, uh, one walk in three innings of work. So this Aberdeen rotation, I said, was it me? Was it somebody else? I think it was, it was another show. Was it us? I, I don't remember. Someone said that uh, this Aberdeen rotation was going to be overlooked, but you're going to have some breakout stars among this group. And so far, so good. Yeah, I think I might have even copied that and said it on my Locked On Orioles Aberdeen preview. So, uh, yeah, I'll go with mine next. Uh, J.D. Mundy I went with for my hitter, who I think he was just coming back from an illness or a minor injury or something like that. But he had a really good week, especially with the walks that he took. I know he had three walks in one game. He also hit a bomb to center field the same game that Gunnar Henderson hit one out there. And he's got his numbers up to a respectable level. He's up to a 118 WRC plus, batting 255 with a 770 OPS, uh, nine and a half walk rate, which is a little bit down from last year. But, you know, he seems to be moving in the right direction. And he's striking out less than he did at high A last year at 20.6%. So shout out to the slug and first baseman. Hopefully he can get some consistent playing time here and continue to do what he did last year at a higher level. And for the pitcher, I'm also in double Bowie. I'm going with Ryan Watson, who after Drew Rahm talked about him on our show last week, and then he was due to, to start with Adley Rutschman behind the plate. I was like, let me pay extra attention to Ryan Watson tonight. And the first four batters he faced went double-double, home run double, and uh, didn't look too good. But he settled down. He ended up going five – let me look it up – five and two-thirds innings. Did give up another two-run homer later in the game, but – uh, I also know that John Mioli talked about he had a velocity bump, which I did not know about until I read that, and it makes a lot of sense. He's went from like 90, 91 to like 94, 95, and it's showing. He's got four pitches. He kind of reminds me of Brandon Young type where he has four solid pitches he can throw in any count, and he is gritty out there. He's on the mound battling. He's got a 241 ERA. And his FIP is 3.12, XFIP 3.53, so it's not exactly, you know, like a fluke or anything. So I think Ryan Watson is a guy to watch, even though he did give up six runs in less than six innings his last time out. I, I think I think he's a dude. Going a little unconventional with my pick for the hitter this week because 
in six games, he batted 200, but I think there are some positive trends going on here, and that's Isaac DeLeon, Swerbird's uh, infielder, who got off to a really slow start this year. That's still reflected in his stat line, but a couple of things that jump out at me. He had a couple of good games against Columbia, including a two-for-three, two-walk performance on May 5th. And here's some numbers I'm going to pull up for him. 21% walk rate. Uh, for Aberdeen this year. And we talked a little earlier about Gunnar Henderson facing hitters or pitchers that are older than him. In the case of De Leon, he has had four plate appearances all year against pitchers that are younger than him. He's 20 years old. He'll be 21 in November. So I think that there are some signs here of positive trends and some things that could be going the right direction for De Leon, even if that batting average overall in the year at 155 Obviously, he still has a long way to go to bring that back up. And then my other pick is the South Atlantic League Pitcher of the Week, which still sounds weird. We're talking about a high A league, and that's Ignacio Feliz. Uh, Feliz, five innings, one hit, no runs, a walk, five strikeouts, piggybacking for Gene Pinto last week. He recorded the win, and Feliz, the strikeout stuff is back this year. After he really struggled at Aberdeen, We've seen him strike out 31 batters so far on the season against just seven walks. The ERA right now over six, but you have to factor in that that was largely inflated by an outing he had on April 14th when he gave up eight runs in the inning inning in two-thirds against Wilmington. Uh, Since then, he's pitched 12 innings, allowed one run, struck out 23, walked three. After struggling when he got to Aberdeen last year, the Ignacio Feliz from Delmarva, in early 2021 is back. The case strut is back. All is good. 47.7% strikeout rate for Aberdeen this year. That is absurd. Uh, how many? 15 and two thirds innings. Yeah, the area is 6.32, but I just pulled it up to look. His FIP is 3.91 and his XFIP is 2.45. Not bad for a shortstop. <laughs> and how old is he? Oh, good question. Uh, he is, he's 22, 22 and a half. So he'll be 22 so- all season. Yeah, Tuesday nights are my favorite nights. Pinto and Feliz nights, <laughs> they're, they're fun to watch for sure. Back-to-back, got to love it. Yeah, seeing those guys go in tandem is always uh, must-see TV or must-see MILB TV. Uh, not we will not be must back. here, though, that's for sure. <laughs> we will be back next week with episode one-on-one. We are joined by Justin Ramsey. As we mentioned at the top of the show, that episode will likely be will likely come out on Tuesday. Uh, depending on the timing, if and when we see Adley Rutzman next week. So be sure to check us out on Twitter, at BSL and the Birds, to get updates on that. Also check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com for Bob's latest articles, as well as the other great content we have on the site covering the Orioles and Ravens. And be sure to hop on the message board to join in discussion with fellow readers of the site, as well as contributors. Uh, For Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spedden, and this has been the 100th episode of On the Birds. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.